Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to Rates and Barrels, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. Happy Monday. We had a trade go down pretty soon after we stopped recording on Friday afternoon. So we narrowly missed being on there for breaking news, which I know makes everybody really happy. <laughs> yes. I'm going to keep an eye on Twitter just to be safe. Uh, so we'll talk about that deal. We're going to talk about the concept of organizational brain drain because it definitely uh, relates to one of the teams involved in that trade. Uh, we'll talk about making better in-season decisions. Lots of great questions came in, so we're going to try to answer as many of those as we can. Plus, we got Spencer Howard back up in Philadelphia, so we'll talk about what we might expect from him in the week's and months ahead. Uh, you know, let's start with this trade. It's a pretty rare to get a starting caliber player moved early in the season, but it happened. Willie Adames, along with Trevor Richards, going to the Brewers, JP Fireisen and Drew Rasmussen going back the other way to Tampa Bay. At the time the trade happened, everybody said, Wander time. And the Rays, 30 minutes later, said, Nope, Taylor Wall's time. Which, you know, <laughs> Taylor Walls is a nice prospect. We'll get to him in just a minute. But one thing that really struck me looking at this trade was Willie Adamas' home splits at the Trop are just brutal. And I'm trying to figure out just how much I want to adjust accordingly with my expectations. Like getting out of that difficult environment for him to hit and going into a hitter-friendly park absolutely is worth something. But he is crossing over leagues, going to see a lot of pitchers he's less familiar with, and he's been running a high K right now going back to the shortened season. So I guess I'm trying not to expect too much too quickly, even though I think this is a clear upgrade for him. Yeah, he can't just like take that away split, that 292, 365, 493 beautiful baby and uh, stick it in the new crib uh, to continue <laughs> that tortured analogy. Um, you know, so I, uh, I doubt he'll have a 130 WRC plus as he has had away from home, even if that seems to come in a slightly robust sample. Um, it's not really. It's 636 plate appearances away from home. Is that it? That's all he's done? It seems like he's been up a little longer than that, doesn't it? I'm doing the career splits. Well, yeah, but look at look at his overall. He only has 1,200 plate appearances for his career. So anyway, uh, away splits, you know, they they get accumulated in a lot of different parks. They uh, get accumulated over different years. So I, I wouldn't um, say that. But by the same time, um, there's like a human involved here, and the human has said that he had a hard time seeing the ball in Tropicana Field. Trop. The trop. So we know that, uh, you know, see the batter's eye, the sort of background behind the pitcher uh, can be a big deal. And that at certain parks will augment uh, strikeouts even uh, that strikeouts have a park factor, basically. 
And for a player like him who has been kind of toggling between hitting the ball hard and striking out less, you know what I mean? Um, I could see a home park that made his strikeout woes worse being a big deal. So um, I think he's a really interesting uh, player to watch going forward. Um, and uh, we'll have to see how much the, the friendly confines will help him out. Yeah, I think it's going to be a nice little boost. Probably 240, 250 type hitter with the swing and miss in his game, but maybe is more safely going to reach that 20 homer sort of output that we've seen him flash in the past. I think that's the the key here. The floor is much more stable. Playing time's not going to be a concern because... Unfortunately, the steals are gone. The steals are pretty much gone, but the Brewers are going to play him every day because they needed a defensive upgrade. That was the reason why they made this trade. Luis Urias' defense just hasn't been that good. Urias sort of becomes more of a super utility player. That's funny because I see highlight reel for Urias, but not not steady production. Throwing issues, like consistent uh, throwing issues, and so. But now Hira's up. I mean, there's an interesting thing happening with the Brewers' uh, situation there. That that depth chart. So is Urias becoming more of a utility player, kind of in a some sort of timeshare with Travis Shot third, and then backing up the rest of them. Yeah. But if he has throwing issues, you don't really want to play him at third. He, Who was playing at second that pushed Hira to first? Colton Wong. So you're not going to move oh, Wong. but you've already got Wong, yeah. But Urias being a righty, he can platoon with someone like Wong, or he can platoon with Travis Shaw, and if he hits enough and he irons out the throwing issues, there's no reason to think that he couldn't play third base if you decide that he's your best option. there eventually, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's the path for him. I think it's interesting that... Trevor Richards was thrown in this deal because when the Rays acquired him, we talked about him, I think, on this pod. It was two summers ago at the trade deadline. And we thought, hmm, maybe they're going to just have him throw the changeup more. And he really didn't increase the use of the changeup all that much. So now I remain curious if the Brewers will have him throw the changeup a little bit more often, if they're going to try and use him as a two-inning guy. Uh, losing two relievers as part of this deal, kind of dealing from depth. The Brewers gave up J.P. Fireyes and, and Drew Rasmussen. Two guys that have good stuff and two guys that you could see having meaningful roles of some kind in that Rays mix-and-match bullpen. Yeah, and I think they can get equal bulk out of, uh, uh, who is it more, Rasmussen, I think. I think they'll be able to pitch Rasmussen. Both of these guys have excellent stuff numbers. They're both uh, 25 to 30% better than league average with stuff. And what's also interesting about them is that they both have multiple pitches. I think Fireisen and Rasmussen came up in along with um, the other guy that just got traded, Sean Poppin. Remember when we were talking about relievers that could start? Mm-hmm. I did reach out to um, a source that I have with the Rays, and I don't think either guy is going to be made into a starter. But I do think Rasmussen could replace the two innings at a time that Richards has been doing. And then Fire Eisen will be a more traditional one-inning guy, probably because of the uh, injuries he's had in his past. Yeah, and I wonder how much just having some flexibility and getting guys who are earlier in their careers cheaper, how much that plays into. I think this, have is, options. this is the last year that Richards has options and you know, once that year's passed, then suddenly he becomes a guy you have to keep on your roster. Guys like that don't always fit on a team like the Rays, where they love to shuttle guys up and down. Because the Rays are always uh, overtaxing the bullpen, honestly, and have to send guys down to get rest and then get a fresh arm up for a while. I mean, that's 
That is what they do, right? Is it? Part of it, yeah. Man, it's it's kind of hard to tell because when you look at their bullpen, it's like they don't send guys down regularly. All those guys are there. They send put guys on the on the IL a lot. Well, they haven't had to do it as much recently. I think if you go back three or four years, there was a little more of the up and down happening on the bottom spots. But yeah, they have either improved the quality or just been injured enough where that sort of guided the decision-making as far as shuttling guys up and down. Most teams have been. Injuries everywhere this right, season. Right. Let's talk about Taylor Walls for a moment. I felt kind of bad for him that his big league debut uh, <laughs> comes at a time when all of us are waiting for two really Tearing interesting our prospects. Apart for Wanda Franco. Yeah, like we're waiting on Wander, waiting on Bruhan, we get Taylor Walls instead. And, and <laughs> Chris Blessing from from Baseball HQ put it out there in in a few more words, but he's like, "Hey, Taylor Walls is it's good." Like just because they didn't call up Wander doesn't mean you should be disappointed. Like this is a guy that can actually do some stuff. He's hit tool over power. Uh, defends really well at shortstop, can obviously move around and play other infield positions too. I mean, kind of fits the Rays prototype really well and a switch hitter too. So an even more versatile piece that they can move around. So I was trying to think about this from a longer term perspective. How could I envision a situation where all three of Taylor Walls, Vidal Brujan and Wander Franco would all be on that roster together? Because they've all moved around enough even at AAA, Bruhan's playing in the outfield, Wander's playing multiple infield spots. It's not that hard to imagine Yandy Diaz playing a little less and maybe with an injury or you shift a guy like Brandon Lau off second base some days, move him over to first base or DH, and suddenly all three of those guys are on the field together. Here's a crazy thing. Lau has options, but I guess, you know, he's still, even with his struggles, he's uh, 8% better than the average of the stick, so... Um, he still has enough power and patience to make up for the strikeouts and the uh, poor bad ball luck he's having right now. So I don't think they'd option him, but I do think the uh, see, they lost Yoshi Tsutsubo, right, to, to the Dodgers. Um, and I feel like that could happen with G-Man Choi and with Yandy Diaz where they just decide they can get more out of that spot if they put somebody who's versatile in there. And, um, you know, they've done that in the past, too. I mean, they, they just picked up Choi, but before they've shuttled people in and out of first base. Um, so Lau could become a guy who plays first base more often. And then that would open up one spot. And then the other thing I keep waiting for them to do is trade Kevin Kiermeyer, but I don't think anybody's taking them off their hands. I don't think anybody wants that contract and, and player production combination. No. So and, and, and I don't think the Rays are in the business of paying uh, uh, prospects to 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 get rid of players. Yeah, I mean, I I guess with Kiermaier, he's good enough to be on your bench as your last outfielder. But he's taken up a roster slot. Mm-hmm. That's the problem, right? I mean, you're, you're kind of just stuck in this no man's land. You'd have to bump like Brett Phillips or someone like that off the roster. And what's a what's a he's what is the deal here? What's he got left? He's got Kiermaier signed through next season. Right, the 2022 with a 23 club option, so you could just DFA him. Yeah, just eat the money. Is it? You know, they 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 got rid of Willie Dumps. I'm I'm just I'm just projecting this because, um, you know, they the the Rays act the way they do. I I don't think I would say that for any other team because Kiermaier has 
is their sort of grizzled vet at this point. And he still has uh, some value on the field. But um, I think that they could get more, especially offensive value, if they basically uh, went with Bruhan in center. And they would have a soft landing spot with Margot. So you basically have a Bruhan-Margot situation in center. It would be more offensively productive uh, than one with Kiermaier in it, I think. And not to you know completely lose the discussion just from a what's going on with the Rays offense standpoint I mean they're actually good as an offense right now they're sixth in the league in WRC plus sitting at 107 but to think that they could maybe make a couple more moves and push to the very top they could challenge Houston and the White Sox and the Dodgers and possibly be a top three offense if they make the right moves that's why we're so intrigued now as far as walls goes you know like he was picked up in pretty much any deep mixed league over the weekend, pretty aggressively pursued. I think because of his versatility, it made sense to at least put in like a three to five percent bid in a mixed league. I don't know if you had to go a lot higher than that because there is uncertainty. He could come up and struggle for the first time and get sent back down, and it wouldn't be the biggest surprise in the world. But I thought he was a player that was at least worth bidding on. Yeah, yeah. What's complicating is the fact that I, I think I, I speak for the consensus in the scouting community that. Wanda Franco's bat is more exciting than Taylor Walls's. Um, and uh, just the reason why we might push Bruhan and Wander into the major leagues this year is that Tampa is running that 107 WRC plus with the fourth worst strikeout rate in baseball. And the one thing that Bruhan and Wander can do over Walls even is make contact. Um, Walls' strikeout rate is something that I, I will find really compelling to watch because it was at times sort of low teens, mid-teens. Um, and then this year, he started walking twice as often, so 21% of the time, but also striking out 29% of the time. So if he becomes more of a sort of three-true-outcomes guy, I don't think that actually helps um, the Rays do what they need to do, especially when it comes to the postseason. They need to make more contact in the postseason in particular. So I wouldn't be surprised if they move away from Kiermaier and maybe even Walls um, towards Wander and uh, Bruhan at some point because those guys make more contact. By the way, what's up with Joey Wendell? He's hitting a lot. He homered again on Monday, so he's at 310, 365, 552 this season. Has the K rate really a, just under 20%. percent I think. <laughs> oh, yeah, an early grand slam against uh, Trent Thornton, right? Oh my god. I love him because he just alternates good and bad years. <laughs> I just didn't see this coming from him at all, but if you go back and look through the years, I mean 17, 18, 20 and 21, good OBP, good average, uh, not a lot of power most years, so this is definitely a step forward. I mean 6 home runs in 45 games. He's going to break his career high. His previous career high was 7 back in 2018. He's probably going to break it by the end of the month. So <laughs> But don't do the on pace for. I don't think he's got a five percent barrel rate. I don't think. I don't think he's on pace for. Uh, what would it? What would the on pace for be here? Fifteen. Mm, even more than that. That'd be twenty twenty one. I think. Yeah, he's not. I don't think he, uh, the over under for me on homers for the year for him is like still around twelve. <laughs> a better player though than I'm probably giving him credit for. At least better than I was giving him credit for oh, back during draft season. He is, saved our butt in in devil's rejects and we're, we're falling off a little bit because the injuries have been pretty bad um but uh 
he was an amazing, he was our last keeper in 20 team keeper OBP. And he's available. He's like, he's eligible at all these different places and we've played him everywhere and he saved our butt. And we, we weren't even sure we were going to keep him because he's a pretty marginal guy year to year, you know? Yeah. No, it's, if you told me going into the season, Joey Wendell or Luis Arias, I'd say it probably doesn't matter. They're both good average guys (laughs) that play all over that don't have a lot of power. And the correct answer to this point has been, no, pretty obviously Joey Wendell. He is delivering a lot more in that category. Uh, We we had a question come in over the weekend from listener John, and it's about the Rays. He's actually a Jays fan writing in. And what he's wondering about is how the Rays continue to do what they do with the resources they have. And he says, uh, if I suddenly discovered that I've been left a baseball team in billions of dollars, the first thing I'd do is go wild for about a year and hopefully not die. That's (laughs) standard. Right after that, I'd call the Rays GM, offer him quadruple his salary, and tell him I'll also hire anyone he thinks is integral in any way to their success for triple their salary. I feel like that'd be worth way more to my team than a $10 million free agent. Is there a reason why teams aren't doing a more low-key version of that and just brain-draining the Rays to death over the years? Thanks a million, John. And we started thinking about it before the show. You start looking around like there are several GMs that came from the Rays. Andrew Friedman in Los Angeles, Chaim Bloom in Boston. James Click is now the GM in Houston. He took over after Jeff Luno's departure. Matt Arnold is the assistant GM in Milwaukee. He's fairly well locked in there as the number two behind David Stern. So it kind of happens already, and the Rays just keep on churning. They just keep on finding good people up and down in the org that enable them to have this prolonged success. Yeah, there's actually, I didn't thought of this until you just used that description, churning. Um, there is actually kind of like a corollary between uh, how they run their baseball team and, and their front office. They just like, they have things, I guess, that they look for in, in, in hiring people and they have certain salaries they won't go beyond. Um, and they just let people go if they need to go, right? That's like <laughs> so they do on the major league team. We just saw Dumas go. So, um, yeah, to so some extent, it's about there being a fair amount of supply out there of people that would have the skills that they, that they the sort of analytical skills that they, that they value. Um, and so they're just going to, that's one way that they're going to get through it. Um, another thing that I think about is that um, there's a guy, Louis Polis, uh, he now works with the, um, Philly's front office, but he wrote a piece for a while back that that suggested that uh, front offices were an untapped resource in terms of investment. That teams should invest more in their front offices and should invest. That there was more uh, more returns to be had if they invested further in their front offices. And I think we have seen that now. We've seen uh, a lot of title inflation. Uh, I wrote about that maybe two winter meetings ago, um, where uh, you're you're stacking more people in. Um, to, 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 and also that helps build in sort of ideation time. So if you now have a, an AGM that handles one third of the job that the GM used to handle, right? You have three AGMs and each of them handle the job the GM used to have. Now that GM can kind of just dream up some ideas, uh, dream up research, dream up trade ideas, uh, stay connected to other GMs and, and maybe fall into a trade that didn't expect that sort of deal. Um, and, um, now the president of operations is, uh, tasked with kind of, you know, overall vision 
Uh, and um, so now there's like four or five people doing the job that used to be one. And that's partially because people are investing. But also, the last thing I think of, um, and I don't necessarily always think of the raise when I think of this, I think the major part of investment right now among teams is player development. And so, um, you know, if you think about salaries for GMs these days, you know, they're not really public, but from some Googling and some thinking, I think that I would guess the average salary for GM right now is around $2 million. And so if you really wanted to have the best GM, you might spend five or $6 million to get a GM. Um, the best salaries for pitching coordinators that I know of are around 300000 So that means that if you wanted to get the top of the line uh, player development program with the best pitching coordinator, the best hitting coordinator, you could do all of that and hire maybe 15 people and spend a million dollars, spend half as much as you'd spend on a GM. And you might have more of an impact. So I would say that that's what we're seeing from other teams is they're like, you know, is the Braves brilliance the player development or is it the GM or is it just the whole sort of mindset of like, we're going to wring the most out of every player and we're only, and, and we're not going to get attached to any player. We're not going to get sucked into any player. We're, we're just going to keep everybody moving. And if you realize that that is their general strategy, then you can, you can employ almost any GM and say, hey, let's be more like the Rays and like own everybody from like 23 to 26, and that's it. <laughs> and then add a little, a couple old pitchers and, and call it a day. So um, I think that the player development is really where people are doing this. The brain drain, the serious brain drain, is in player development. If you if you establish yourself as a as a person to be had in in player development, you can be had for less money, and uh, that's the sexy part of baseball right now. Do you think that there's Still something, though, if you're in a different market, uh, forces of, of selling tickets, being popular, maintaining a happy fan base that really is part of the business of baseball that makes this less tenable if you're not in a place like Tampa Bay or Oakland. I think you could you could look at the A's and, and see plenty of parallels over the last mm-hmm. 20 years. I mean, like there's a lot of success without a lot of spending on player salaries in particular. And a lot of player movement. Yeah, a lot of player movement, and we've seen other we've seen people leave Oakland to go on to have prominent roles. Farhan Zaidi, of course, in Oakland several years ago, now calling the shots in San Francisco. I just I wonder, could you can you run the Rays model everywhere? And again, this is not necessarily a, a player friendly model at all. This is a very team friendly mm. model. I just wonder if it, if you can get away with that in bigger markets with consistently higher expectations and more pressure to keep stars. Yeah, I, I don't know. There's, I mean, there's a, two things that come to mind. One is that when you study attendance, um, players, like single players don't seem to drive it. Like if you look at like a big call up, you know, or a big free agent signing or something, there isn't usually a one-to-one correlation, which may just be because stuff is complicated and there's all sorts of reasons that people might not buy tickets or buy tickets. You know what I mean? It's not, you know, it's, it might be really amazing to be like, they signed Bryce Harper and tickets went up, you know? Uh, maybe that's just not possible to, to draw that line. However, it doesn't, you can't draw that line. You just can't draw that line for, for a single player. The number one thing that drives attendance is winning. Um, but then once you say that, right. And then you just, you're like, but then look at Oakland and Tampa. Right. And look at these places 
where they just run through players and there's those you have fans saying things like oh chapman we've only got him for another couple of years you know just enjoy him while you have him is like a thing i hear in oakland all the time enjoy him while you have him um which is just depressing and i think it does lead to fewer fans in the seat it has to have some sort of effect it definitely has an effect on how fans view that team there's definitely a sort of like you know i have to be a laundry person here because i'm like the player will be gone in two or three years so I'm really fascinated to see what Farhan does in San Francisco. I'm just, it's going to be really fascinating because they already did not sell Madison Baumgartner at the trade deadline. They didn't sign him. So they, they're not, so that's more Raisian, you know, not, don't like give Madison money because he was so awesome in the past, you know. Um, but at the same time, uh, they did not trade him for a small prospect at the, at the deadline. Um, and so, there might be an attempt in San Francisco to, I don't know, keep keep some semblance of uh, con- continuity and um, and stars you recognize, because I think there is a a fair amount of pressure on the Giants to keep butts in seats, and there's also a fair amount of uh, built-in butts in seats because the park is so nice and it's become a destination park, and people will go to it. So. I don't know. I, I want to see. The, 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 the Giants definitely at the beginning were churning. Like, they worked the waiver wire maybe harder than anybody. Right. But that's what you should do when you're rebuilding. You should, you should like, even if you have money, you should be churning because you're bringing new talent to the organization at every opportunity, evaluating those players and trying to figure out who sticks and who could possibly be used to help you acquire younger players that will help you more in the long run. I do think one key difference here and maybe we have a blueprint already with the Dodgers and Andrew Friedman I think Farhan's going to steer the Giants more like that they're going to try and be the organization that does everything well they're going to be patterned more like that for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned they have the stadium they have the incentives to fill it because they can right and and then, and then you sign Justin Turner but you only sign him for like three years and you try to just keep the number down right <laughs> like you want Justin Turner because he's good and because your fans love him and you you know you want him around, but like you also don't want to sign him at necessarily his number and give him too many years and that and so on and so forth. That's probably why those negotiations drug out a little bit because everybody, like the player and the team, wanted it to happen. They just didn't want to like uh, get themselves locked into some sort of situation they wouldn't want to be in later. And what we still don't know with the Dodgers: Will they pay Corey Seager? Will they pay Cody Bellinger? Yeah, they paid Mookie Betts, but. Are they only paying at the absolute top of the top end on those massive multi-year deals? Because we know a lot of times, you know, you get good production early, you get the the pool holes problem late, and that's not a good spot to be in later on if you're trying to contend on an annual basis and you're worried about navigating things like you know the luxury tax, for example. So, a great question from John. It's 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 uh it's, it's happening, <laughs> and they they keep winning despite it, which is is truly truly amazing. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, you know, it's that time of year where I think we're all getting a little antsy with our, they're not slow starters anymore, our long slumpers, we'll call them. I don't, <laughs> do we have a name for these players? Our, our, our disappointments, our biggest disappointments. <laughs> like, it, you start to stare at those numbers on the screen. You're making your lineup decisions on Mondays or every day in some leagues, or at least Mondays and Fridays and NFBC leagues. And you keep thinking to yourself, like, am I really sticking with this guy? Am I really going to keep going down this rabbit hole? Uh, we had a question come in about Anthony Rendon versus Austin Riley specifically as a possible lineup decision. So uh, opening it up just more broadly, how do you make decisions like that when you have a guy like Riley who's tearing the cover off the ball, but you have a guy like Rendon who's a clear-cut early-round pick with that long track record who's just been unable to really get it going at the levels we're accustomed to around a couple of early injuries? Yeah, I mean, specifically... I'm probably just fine with riding with Rendon still. Um, you know, the barrel rate is about the same as it was last year. Um, I think he can improve the strikeout rate just because he has such a long track record of having a good strikeout rate. I think the batting average will come. I think he'll still manage to hit 20-plus homers this year. Um, but, uh, and if you look at projections, like if you look at the auction calculator in a 12-team situation, Rendon is worth like eight more dollars uh, than Riley rest of season. Or let's see if that holds up with the bat. Um, steamer is the default there. With the bat, uh, we've got Rendon worth $13 rest of season and Riley worth three. Yeah. So it's about the same situation where projections are going to tell you you just got to play Rendon every day. The one thing I will uh, concede is that I, I do start thinking a little bit more about peripheral pieces of information that could help me make decisions. So they do, they do have come closer to each other. So now if Riley, if it's a daily league and Riley's facing a lefty and Rendon's facing a righty, I might put Riley in. Uh, if it's a weekly league and Rendon has seven, uh, seven games or Riley has seven games and Rendon has five, I might put Riley in. Yeah. I think sometimes you get lucky and some of the information like that, makes the decision for you or at least makes it easier to go against your initial instincts. My initial instinct is to do with the projection say mm -hmm. and stick with my stars for a long time. And generally that's probably the right long-term play, but it's not always the right long-term play. Um, schedule's definitely a good call. I think your health could be a problem here. Mm -hmm. There could be an underlying health thing that, you know, doesn't show up in the projections that is affecting Rendon. Yeah, so you've talked about this in the past, but if you look at uh, like rolling exit velocity charts, like do you find that that's still a good way to unearth whether or not a player is completely healthy? I mean, I think in the case of Rendon, like clearly he's back from the IL and he's playing right now, so he's uh, ticking the box being available. But do you look at something like that and see, oh, well, if he's lagging, not hitting the ball as hard as he ordinarily does, he's lagging a bit, does that give you that little nudge to say, yeah, it could still be an injury that's slowing him down, even though he's back from the IL? 
Yeah, I suppose. But, um, you know, the, the exit velocity situation here for Rendon uh, tells us that um, since he's come back from the DL, like he's hitting the ball well. Um, I'm just looking at uh, just his ga- now there's game logs on fan graphs with uh, average EV and uh, just looking at the last, you know, sort of 15 games, he's, he's been averaging over 91. He had five batted ball events on May 1st that averaged 97. Yeah, he's healthy. Doesn't it seem like he's healthy? <laughs> Seems like he's pretty healthy at this point. Yeah. yeah, and the barrel rate compared to last season, you know, still in the 6% range. He's had years in the past, 15, 16, and 17, where he was in the 5 to 6.5% range each year, popped I up still... to 10 plus in 2018 and 2019. So, I mean, that may have been just the career peak. And 2019 was the rabbit ball, you know. I mean, look back at what he was before. He was a three, you know, 270 to 300 hitter that hit 20 to 25 homers. I believe that's who he is. And if we say that about Rendon, what do you think Riley is at this point with some of the adjustments he's made? Yeah, I just think that the Riley's over his head on the batting average. Right. I think he's more of like a 250 guy for now. One who walks a decent bit. Hits Might have more power. Middle third of the order. Yeah, could unlock more power, but is it going to be that much of a difference? I mean, we're talking maybe a handful of homers over the course of the what's left of the season at most. So you're trading a few points in batting average, maybe more than a few to possibly get the extra homers. Your point, your, your position in the standings actually could be one of those peripheral concerns that changes your mind about playing him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if you just need the power and don't care about that batting average difference, maybe you play Riley. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, Riley last year did show improved plate skills, walked more, struck out less. He's striking out more than he did in the shortened season, even with this breakout. He's also walking more. he has a 420 BABIP, dude. You just got to, you know, I know that's old school, but, it, you know. Right. Nobody averages a 420 BABIP for the year. No, he he will not continue to do that. So in this particular case, I'd be sticking with Rendon unless we have those lumpy schedules, which we did have this week, especially this week. with the first part of the week, with the Braves only having two games in the first four days, only five for the week as a whole. So I, I would have stuck with Rendon in that spot. If the roles were reversed, if Rendon had five and Riley had seven, that would probably have been enough for me to say, yeah, I'll, I'll play Riley this week, but I'm I'm getting Rendon back in there and planning on using him by default uh, most of the time going forward. Uh, thanks a lot for that question. That came from Jonathan, by the way. Uh, a similar question came in about how to make a comeback in Roto. This one came from Casey. Casey's in a 12-team 5x5 league. He's had a mix of bad injury luck and bad performance so far out of his hitters in particular, which is a pretty common problem. I think there's a lot of people <laughs> out there that can make a pretty big run still. Uh, he has got a Yelich, Kyle Lewis, Cattell Marte, Conforto, Hap combination, and he's got uh, Miguel Sano and Dansby Swanson underperforming too. So uh, what do you do? Like He's down in the most critical and correlated categories, homers, RBIs, and runs. Do you wait for these guys to bounce back or do you chase waiver wire replacements and try and grind it out that way? I mean, it's related to the last question too, right? When do you cut bait on a guy? Uh, but if you cut bait on Miguel Sano, like, is, have we had this question, question sitting in the inbox for a while? Sano? Uh, no, this one actually came in fairly recently. He went on a binge okay. last week. Yeah, he had like a five-homer week. Um, I think probably his batting average is sunk. Yeah, you punt, so, you punt average maybe as part of your your strategy here. So if you have somebody that uh, is mostly giving you value from batting average, 
um, on your bench or like if you had an Arias type that you were like keeping around just to try to keep your average afloat, you could just easily punt him, punt him. Don't, don't, don't kick players. Don't punt players. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you could easily drop him for uh, a player that was more power centric and maybe even one that uh, has a bad batting average. And that might be actually available on your wire because that's a fairly common player. Yeah, I agree. And if one of your other core hitters that you didn't include in that list, you're thinking about your roster and you got Jose Ramirez or somebody who's just a, a good foundational piece who has delivered, who does draw a good amount of value in that batting average category, you can consider trading that player, possibly giving up one and getting two back. And you can maybe kind of skew towards those lower average mashers that people are generally pretty willing to part with. I think you might be able to find a trade partner who can consolidate a spot. They're helping themselves. They're getting more production out of each roster spot, and you're getting more production out of each roster spot for the categories that you're actually chasing the rest of the way. So I would think about that too. This would apply to higher-end players on your roster, not just the the mid-range guys. Yeah, focus on focus on categories that seem the easiest to move. And the, and the things like batting average and ERA are the hardest to move at this point already. You already had two months banked. That means that if you have if you are, if you have two months banked of bad in in a in a category like that ERA or or, or uh, batting average, that means for every like ten points you want to move, you have to you have to average like twenty points better for two months. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. so you're you can't just be like oh. You know, I want to, you know, I, I have a 3-5 ERA and I want to get to 3-4. So I have to pick up guys that will have a 3-4 ERA. No, you have to have a 3-3 ERA <laughs> for, for two for two months uh, to really make, to maybe move the needle there. So um, I think that uh, finding ways to sort of punt categories and focus on, on some things is uh, probably the best way forward. I also find, and I'm trying to be very cognizant of schedules and maximizing playing time anyway, but I would extra aggressive if you're trying to make a comeback in the pitching categories you're already low in the ratios go after a lot of two-start weeks you can start going after the players that you ordinarily wouldn't necessarily even want for a two-start week the more fringy guys because if you can start making up the ground and wins and homers yeah yeah and you might get lucky with the ratios too if you've only got a couple points you can drop you might as well take the chance on the points you can gain going up in wins and k's Mm -hmm. yeah good idea so be more aggressive on that front and be more aggressive schedule-wise with your hitters as you're trying to make that comeback as well. The Rasball streaming air is uh, fairly useful. Like, I like it. I, I use it, especially in weekly lineup leagues. Uh, you use the streaming air, you can just uh, compare guys in their schedules better. So it has hitters and it has it has pitchers for the next seven days. And, you know, you'll you'll be able to kind of look at that uh, Riley versus um, Arenado kind of or Rendon situation um, within the confines of even projections and say, oh, the pro- even the projections say that this week uh, Riley is a better player, Rendon is a better play. So um, uh, I, I, I highly recommend that that product. Yeah, factoring in all those different things that you're looking at. I mean, teams change quickly. We've talked about that for pitching matchups. There are some teams that three weeks ago we wanted nothing to do with with streamers that now we're sort of aggressively targeting with streamers because injuries piled up, one or two key players are gone, and suddenly they go from an above-average lineup to a below-average lineup. So finding tools that help you account for that is really helpful. Definitely times you want to stream against the Mets, and then I could see times when you don't want to. (laughs) 
yeah, once they get healthy, I don't want to stream against them anymore. For now, I think I'm willing to take my chances with a exactly, lot more fringy yeah. options. Um, let's talk about Spencer Howard for a minute. He came back up over the weekend. Tough first assignment. So if you were to first come first serve league, you would have picked him up and probably just said, I'm going to wait until his next turn. Uh, he's going to pitch against the Marlins on the road this week for his only start. The question that came in on Howard was effectively, is he a streamer only for this spot or should we have some expectations of him making an impact even beyond having a good matchup this week? Yeah, I, I my my instinct is to say that he's a streamer because his home park is not super conducive to good pitching stats. Um, I'm not saying that it's a super hitters park or anything, but um, it's not like he pitches in Florida or something, you know? Um, and so when he does get those good matchups, I want him in there. And there's some good news in his stuff numbers. Uh, the overall stuff is just slightly above average, but uh, his slider is 126 stuff plus and his four seam fastball is 105. And you don't actually, there's a lot of fastballs in the league that are sub 100 that are out there on good pitchers. So to see that combination says that's probably what you're looking for in young pitchers. Like that's what you're lo- the foundation you're looking for in young pitchers. His curveball is 92 stuff plus. Changeup is 59. So uh, maybe he ends up focusing on being a two breaking ball pitcher. But just to see the fastball slider rated so highly makes me think um, fairly highly of his of his uh, possible outcomes. I think what I'm worried about. It's just how the Phillies want to manage him, too. Like The park is definitely a concern for me. So I was bidding on him this weekend, but I was bidding on him more like the way I would bid on a streamer that I hope to keep around but didn't have to keep around. It was more like 2 to 3% of my budget in a lot of leagues because, fortunately, a lot of places where he was available, I wasn't desperate for pitching. So it was more of a keep him honest sort of bid. If I get him, great. If I don't, not the end of the world for the reasons we're talking about. And I think with the Phillies... I do see that as one of the worst places to pitch in the league. I mean, it's probably a top five hitters park, right? Behind Coors and Yankee Stadium. Like, I don't know if there's a, an overall environment that is all around more difficult. It boosts homers. It boosts runs. I think it boosts offense as a whole. It might not be off the charts for like doubles and stuff because if it's a small park that boosts up home runs, then some of those balls in play are turned into outs. But uh, at Miami, obviously, I want to use him there. If he's in the rotation still next week, he's got at Cincinnati, and he should still be there. They're not going to put Chase Anderson back in the rotation. Like, Are you starting Spencer Howard at Cincinnati, even if he comes out and crushes against the Marlins on Thursday? Like, I'm, I'm pretty hesitant to use him in that particular spot on the road. Yeah, no. Uh, no, I'm not I'm not using him there. Uh, here, I, I just loaded up the StatCast Park Factors which I've always thought that StatCast uh, and Savant numbers could were the best possible way to do park factors going forward. Rockies, number one. Braves playing as the second friendliest to hitters hmm. uh, at Truist Park. Then you've got Cincinnati, Philadelphia, Citizens Bank is fourth, and Fenway is fifth. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to play him in four of those five, I'm a little surprised by the Braves ranking, to be honest. But um, it's possible that that Braves Park is... I think Braves, uh, the Braves Park screwed me a little bit with um, 
uh, who just went there? JT Brubaker? Did he just was he part of that uh, losing nine to nothing and oh, man. losing twenty to nothing? That and... was bad. That was really bad. I benched Tyler Anderson for the weekend. Anderson, for that reason. Anderson had a bad start there. Anderson so I'm had starting the to think. Start. I'm starting to think you don't want to start marginal starters in Atlanta, and I and shame on me for not realizing it sooner, but. Um, that's something that uh, I will be looking at going forward. I just didn't want to do it because of the lineup. I, I wasn't necessarily fearful of mm-hmm. the park, but you're if you one, combine the two, I mean, then you get twenty to zero, <laughs> right? But didn't in the first year of the park, didn't it play pretty hitter friendly, and then it's kind of swung wildly back the other way? Like the park factors in Atlanta, I feel like have been a bit of a roller coaster since that park opened. Yeah, I've seen Andrew Perpetua study that 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 somehow the wind has something to do with it. Um, but, um, you know, this is a three year rolling park factor from Statcast, and it's red across the board. It's, uh, boosts, um, boosts all offense by 6%, uh, boosts runs by 12%, boosts home runs by 9%, doubles by 16%. I don't know. Seems, seems like it's pretty legit. Not not a park that you want to mess with, even if the Braves are down a good hitter or two at some point. It seems like every team will be at some point this year. Angel Stadium used to play kind of pitcher-friendly and is now the eighth uh, friendliest of bats, but they also made some uh, serious changes. Right. They changed the walls. Yeah, the right field wall came in, what, 10 feet at least? Came I'm a little lot. surprised to see the D-backs as ninth friendliest to hitters um, because... With the humidor, I thought that was playing mostly uh, pitcher friendly, and a little surprised to see uh, guaranteed rate field going slightly pitcher friendly, and so an American Family Field too, Milwaukee, and Yankee Stadium. The roof's been that that Yankees one's weird. I know there were some pretty cold early season games at Yankee Stadium. It's warmed up here a lot in the last like. 10 days or so it feels like july already in the upper midwest like 85 percent humidity and 75 degree days already so i think that warmer weather is going to get the ball to fly in a few of those places and i wonder how much some of the parks that are in colder weather climates how much those change over the course of the year you know first third versus middle third versus last third or even first half versus second half in a lot of cases Oh, you know what's uh, complicating things is the ones, all the ones I named that I was surprised by are uh, parks where home run park factor is large and in hitter friendly. So in Milwaukee, um, that park boosts homers by 6%. Um, in uh, Guaranteed Rate Field, uh, that boosts homers by 11%. And Dodger Stadium boosts homers by 14%. However, it's blue everywhere else. Hmm. I don't know what that means for how, why that would happen, but um, I suppose sometimes, you know, homers that become homers aren't doubles, so you could see a, a negative correlation there, right? Yeah. Um, and you do see that a little bit with these parks where they, they suppress doubles because maybe those are turning into homers. But uh, interesting to see that they um, that they play pitcher friendly in terms of runs. And I, I went back to 2020 to to check to see if there was big movement, and there hasn't been because these are three years roll three year rolling numbers. So the, these parks are de- definitely figuring out this. Park factors are not easy, man. 
uh, they are not easy to figure out. And uh, like, look, there's if you go back to 2019, Yankee Stadium, seventh friendliest to hitters. There's been there's been a little bit of movement. Yeah, it's not, it's not fun. I leave it to other people because they tend <laughs> to be a little better at it than me. But uh, you got to keep an eye on it because stuff does change for all sorts of reasons. We, I think we've talked about it before, but the the construction around downtown San Diego around the park has changed some things there. A big video board in the left field. I mean, every park Nationals has different park. things like that. Nationals Park has so many condos going up around it. Mm. It was playing really hitter-friendly for high drives, but with the condos going up, is it changing the other way? It, it ended up. It, it did end up going from third in 2019 to sixth now in terms of hitter-friendliness, so maybe. Hmm. Yeah, may, I love the, the, well, maybe. <laughs> That's all we can do in, in some cases, but uh, yeah. thank you for that. It's a great, great question on, on Spencer Howard that got us digging into the rabbit hole. I think he's kind of a streamer type in 12s, pretty safe in 15s, so probably like a back end of the top 100 among starters, like 80 to 100 range for now, in part because of the park and in part because of how they're going to very carefully I presume, manage his innings, even though I think that spot's pretty safely his over Chase Anderson. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I had another question come in. You know, this one is about change-ups and whether or not there could be some issues with the new ball on that pitch in particular. Uh, The question comes in from Sean. He's started thinking about this because of Luis Castillo, but also Devin Williams is two guys whose change-ups are really important, but two guys who have not really delivered on our expectations for this season. Uh, So the question came in, how would one break down results off only change-ups, also by style and grip? Is there an easy way to find out if more probated changes are struggling compared to past performance? I I I was surprised what I found when I looked. <laughs> I was surprised what I found when I looked. I I had this narrative in my head that um, maybe the sticky stuff or just the the excellence of breaking balls had made this a breaking ball league, and people were throwing changeups less, and maybe you know sticky stuff didn't lead to better movement with changeups like it does with other pitches, um, or maybe it was the ball. But I just I had thought that. Changes were being devalued in, in the game today. Um, but when I looked on StatCast, uh, change-up usage is at a 10-year high. And even though... Uh, and, and change-ups are doing the best they've done in terms of results, in terms of weighted on base average, WOBA. Uh, change-ups have never uh, had a, a better um, WOBA against in the pitch tracking era. 
Um, and I thought, well, maybe just all Wobas are, are, are down for all pitch types, but I checked sliders and sliders have the third highest, uh, Woba against, uh, in the last 10 years. And so when you put the two together, uh, basically the Woba difference between changeups and sliders has disappeared, um, which would be a first. Then I started looking at, you know, changeup usage more than ever before. And then I started looking at changeup movement. Mo- movement and changeups have more drop than they ever had. So I think the ball is actually helping changeups move more. It's pretty interesting. They're being used. I think it's all part of the, you know, using the fastball less is using the change change up more. So Hmm. I think, uh, I don't think there's much evidence that, um, changeups are struggling. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of agreed with where the email came from from Sean and and your thoughts. Just it seems like the league's sort of trying to move away from the changeup, but if they're more effective than they've really ever been, that's probably not going to happen. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I do know that changeups get fewer whiffs though. So uh, when I look at woba, that should be uh, factored in, but. I do know that certain teams want to aggressively go after the whiff uh, more than the ball in play. But if you look at some of the more advanced teams, if you look at the Dodgers and Giants, they lead the league in, in um, they use a lot of changeups, but they also lead the league in ground ball rate. And so they, they've embraced the ground ball at a time when other pitching staffs are, are, are chasing after the, the strikeout. Yeah, uh, it's all really interesting stuff because, again, it runs totally counter to what I thought we would find even pulling some of the threads going on there. As far as Castillo goes, man, it, it feels like every time he pitches, Fantasy Baseball Twitter has a, a mini meltdown because everyone wants it to be a turnaround outing. And it it's like there are little flashes there, but overall, we're still far away from the guy we thought we were getting back on draft day. And I got to say this again, like I, I didn't have any reservations about Castillo where he was going at all. And the only reason I don't have him a bunch of places is just because of random things like bidding plus one on the right player in an auction or being in the exact right seat where someone else who I liked a little more was there or someone took him right before me. I mean, I am, I would be wearing this Luis Castillo 10 start stretch everywhere if things would have broke a certain way so i'm very grateful for that because homers are still a problem Uh, walks have still been a little elevated and i don't know like do you see any glimmers of hope in these last couple starts i mean 11k is against the giants two starts ago that's probably where people are starting to say that looks like the guy that we're used to maybe he's turning the corner yeah there's a a lot going on there one of the things is uh i decided this year i wasn't going to do the 2a strategy um, and so I got one ace and that meant that I would get somebody, uh, ahead of Castillo. And then since I wasn't trying to double hit on the ace, um, I've never got Castillo because, you know, he wasn't in my top five or six and I would get one of those top five or six and then I'd peace out and start getting guys in the, around the 20 again, you know? Um, and, uh, so yeah, I also am not getting too much exposure to this, but, um, the other thing that's interesting is that, um, you know, when you look at his people have done pieces on this and, and try to look at it, when you look at his changeup, it's dropping more this year. 
And so you would normally think that would be good. And in the context of my last conversation, I did say that changeups are dropping more than ever, and that is probably good. But for him, the the added drop has come with a reduced um, reduced uh, velocity on the changeup. And we don't normally think of that being super important, but his changeup stuff plus this year is 110.6. And in 2020, uh, the changeup stuff plus was 121.7. So the changeup has gotten worse. Um, the slider has remained about, uh, the slider's gotten a little bit worse. I think the velocity loss has hurt him more with the secondaries than with the, with the fastballs. But, uh, all that being said, Stuff Plus has seen something of a turnaround the last two starts. Um, after being under uh, 100 with his Stuff Plus all year, the last two starts were at 110 and 115. Okay, so yeah, there's there's some hope there. Yeah, um, what I'm what am I seeing in the pitch mix? Because uh, he took a pretty big tumble in your rankings that came out on Friday. Yeah, he did. He did. Uh, because I just think that uh, I, I actually penalized Molly and him um, a fair amount because that park, man. I mean, I like those pitchers, but that's that's a tough park. And so we haven't even seen the weather start to warm yet in terms of um, offense is going to peak later. And with Cincinnati playing the way it is, I think it's only going to get worse. So I do like Luis Castillo for bounce back, but I think he's more of a top 30 pitcher than I think he's a top 10 pitcher. Okay, that may uh, make him comparable to guys like Sonny Gray or another possible buy low in Kenta Maeda, Jamison Tyone, all in those, all in that range in the, the back uh, of the top 30. So great question. Thanks for writing in, Sean, and definitely uh, a, a surprise to both of us seeing how that turned out. Uh, if you got questions for us to get to on a future episode, you can send them our way. Rates and barrels at theathletic.com is the best way to do that. On Twitter, he's at Eno Saris. I am at Derek Van Riper. We've got a great special still running right now at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. $1 a month for the first six months gets you in the door with a subscription that lets you check out all the stuff that Eno writes, the updated rankings that he put up last week. My prospect stuff that I write midweek, plus everything else on the site is included as well. It's kind of a fun time of year to be a sports fan. If you like multiple sports, you got NBA playoffs, NHL playoffs, baseball's in a, a fun place right now, even though the environment's a little screwy. We got uh, Euro, Euro 2021 coming up, even though it's supposed to be Euro 2020. That's going to be a lot of fun. So lots of good stuff coming up on the site. So get a subscription if you don't already have one. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.